welcome to That 80 Show. And this week we have a really special guest on the show. I've been wanting to do this for a while. It has taken us a while to sort it yeah. out. My, my fault, not the guest. Yeah. Let's just be clear. <laughs> Barrett is with me. And uh, our special guest today is Benji Moody. Now, if you don't know who Benji Moody is, then you clearly were never listening to any specifically South African music in the 70s, 80s and beyond. Because this man made most of it happen. Hi, Benji. Welcome to That 80 Show. Hey, Dory. Hey, Barrett. <laughs> hey. Oh, thank you. So, Benji, before we get into the amazing work that you have done in the music industry, let's, let's find out a little bit about you. How did you get into the music industry in the first place? I have always been in, in, in music. I mean, when I was a child, I was a musician. And um, in school, I was, you know, I was into music. And so when I left school, it, um, uh, I uh, came to Johannesburg. I mean, I well, actually, I was in Brackpan. I started singing in bands and playing in bands. And, and that's where the, uh, the relationship between myself and Lucian Windridge particularly from Avoid, came to be because we were both in Brackpan um, in the early 70s and had the original band called Void. Mm. Eric came much, much, much later. And then I moved to Hillbrow and I started working in a record bar uh, and I worked in a record bar for quite a while and I rose up in the ranks. And, and then one day I met these two very peculiar men, um, <laughs> uh, uh, Derek Hannon and Richard Sassoon, and they had just opened Weir Records, which was uh, Warner Electro Atlantic. So they were the South African arm of the big uh, Warner Group. Mm. And they said, "Hey, you want to come work for us?" And I went, "Yeah, cool." So <laughs> I joined Weir. <laughs> yeah, I think I got two hundred and fifty rand a month. Wow, and that wow. was the salary, and I was earning three hundred in the record shop. Um, <laughs> and I joined, and 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 then that journey, that journey started, and it's just continued. To go and, and all, down all these avenues, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we've spoken to Lucian on this show uh, about Avoid specifically. So I met you when you were at Tusk. Mm. In the I met you in the early nineties when mm. I was um, at Voice of Its Campus Radio, and I used to come and get music from you. And we used to talk a lot about the music of that day. But you and I have not actually spoken about the eighties, so I'm quite excited to cool. to talk about the eighties. So when you joined the record company. Were you given all the freedom to like sign bands that you liked? How did you start? So when I joined Weir, which was June 76, mm. uh, um, they had no South African artists on their roster at all. Mm. Um, so the first year and a bit, near, nearly two years, was spent learning how to be in a company, um, and I was the disco promotions manager, and I used to go to all the discos in Joburg on, on the weekend and hand out singles and 12 inches. So I learned the craft of promotion. Yes. Because ostensibly I was a promotion person. And because of my love of music, because music is just so central to what I do, um, I would go and see bands, and I started to look around and... I came across a band at the branch office down in town called Backstop. Right. 1978. And they were like, I was very into Southern rock at that particular time, you know, mm. the Allman Brothers, the ZZ Top and everything. And they were just amazing. So I went to my then boss, Richard Sassoon, and I said, uh, uh, come and see this band with me. He came with me. He said, okay, fine. And he said, do you really want to do this? And I said, yeah, I really want to do it. He said, okay, then sign them. 
And from that point, um, I had complete creative uh, license to sign whatever mm. I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, and with whatever money I needed to do that. And that followed me right throughout Weir and Tusk, which was the, mm. the, 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 the sister company. We became Tusk Music in um, 86. Mm. Uh, and even in my time in Universal, which was a four-year stint at Universal as A&R consultant, I had that freedom within, within uh, um, Universal to do that, mm. which is very rare that you get that kind of latitude, you know, yeah. in, in any company to make decisions. But they just said, you know, they had this crazy kid, this, <laughs> this obsessed music maniac um, who was saying, this is great, this needs to be heard, da-da-da, and, and they just let me go. And sometimes they, well, I mean, sometimes when I signed Mango, they, they, Mango Groove, they, they like raised because of what I paid for the advance on that. Mm. They kind of raised them. But, but yeah, complete creative license. Well, I mean, that certainly uh, was a good instinct you had there with Mango Group. I'm sure they, they were uh, grateful in the long run. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it was a real purple period that, you know, that late 80s, Mark Alex, mm. uh, Mango Groove Little Sister, those particular three was like a, a real purple patch for me that where sales yeah. sales um, overtook expenses. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, money's never been a motivation for me yeah, to sign yeah. artists. Yeah. It's always been, do they have something to say? Mm. Is it different? Is it unique? And And most of the time... Because we have accountants and we had accountants too and we had lawyers too mm. uh, um, because they would raise their eyebrows and, 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 and say, well, you know, that's a, lo it's a lot of money to be spending on it. I'd like, you know, just, <laughs> what do you know? I know nothing about music. It, was all, it's all, it still is all about music though. So in your times of signing artists, did you ever come across artists that you felt were not being unique to themselves or to a voice that was unique? They were trying to be someone that they weren't or not really no not really i think that because my ethic was to sign artists that had something to say and not were not necessarily commercial because of course what is commercial yes. commercial is only when you sell vast amounts of records yep. then you're suddenly commercial yep. and every band no matter how abstract the minute that they rem were abstract until they mm. hit that vein right the, the only time I signed an artist for a motive other than creativity, but rather for money, mm -hmm. um, was when I signed the Working Girls in 1984, <laughs> and they were sort of pre-Spice Girls, you know, yep. five singer-dancers, singers in inverted commas, uh, <laughs> uh, dancers, really beautiful girls, and Atif and Veik was the was the producer um, mm. and and uh, and the writer, and I kind of maybe I was maybe I was phased by the girls, I, you know I don't know, but I, we did it and the single was a hit and then the album was an absolute dud, and I swore never again would I sign anyone that wasn't for for the for the motive of of, of being creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I rem I vaguely remember the Working Girls. Mm. Very vague. Distant memory. <laughs> one of them, one of them, still one of my, my close friends, Justine. Okay. I mean, she married the guy from Face to Face. Oh right. You know, so the eighties were all kind of everything was integrated. You know. Yes, was, I know. We actually connected. we chatted to Cindy Alter not so long ago. Yeah. Oh, she also told us stories about you know everybody like you know knowing oh, everyone. Love else. that girl. 
Love her too. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, you you mentioned like artists having something to say. So, I mean, as we get towards the end of the 70s and we get into the early 80s, a lot of the stuff was quite political because we were in the depths of apartheid South Africa. Mm. And of course, I'm thinking of the asylum kids, Mm -hmm. as we say that. Mm. (laughs) Um, I went down an asylum kids rabbit hole uh, last night in preparation for this interview. Listen to all the old stuff. What amazing music because they've always been classed as punk, but they are very melodic punk. You know, there's like it was very easy listening. It wasn't like because some punk is difficult mm. to listen to, mm. kind of heavy, and you know you got to be in the right frame of mind. But I always found the Asylum Kids, especially that album "Fighter with Your Mind," mm. for that time. I mean, it came out I think 1980, 81, somewhere around there, yeah. yeah. And it was very easy listening, very radio friendly. <laughs> <laughs> radio didn't think so. No, not at the time. Not <laughs> no. at the time. But I mean, if you listen to it now, especially. So tell us about the Asylum Kids. So by the 80s, I think it was clear to everybody, including us in the music industry, that the, the things had really gone haywire, mm. um, particularly in the townships. Not that we were unaware of what the political policies were of this go- that government. Um, and even some of the early stuff that I put out kind of started to hint at that. I, I became quite politicized. Um, in 80 in terms of my thought processes and and um, you know I'd, I'd go to the free people's concerts at bits and I wasn't you know I had a relationship with David Marks and 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 so you know you learn about what's going on the asylum kids to me were the first band that had something very powerful to say mm. And they backed it up with equally powerful music and presence on stage. I mean, there were a three-piece. I mean, there were lots of three-pieces around. There was the police, you know, yeah. as a good example. I mean, I, I think somebody once said, to me, oh, they, are, are they South Africa's answer to the police? And I said, well, the police wish they were like <laughs> the asylum kids. Yeah. Um, Robbie and Dino and Steve had this thing, this um, mercurial... Um, bond between the three of them that you find in certain bands. The Beatles had it, the Stones had it, where it's the sum of three parts and and working together. And there was a lot of fractiousness in, in, in that band anyway. Mm. But all of that drove this amazing album, Fight It With Your Mind. So so when Bob Anderson, who was the, the, the manager, was a, a red-headed Scottish guy who liked to drink a lot, uh, <laughs> as most Scottish people do, um, and, and uh, he came along, and I, I knew Robbie from a band called Shag. Okay. I'd seen them playing <laughs> at... a great name for a yeah, band, yeah. <laughs> I'd seen them playing at Cedric Sampson's Boogie Bond, which became the Chelsea. Right. In the same building. I'd yeah. seen them playing. I thought, I thought he was really good. I mean, Robbie Live is just amazing. Yeah. Then they came to me with this with with this album, and I just said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it immediately ran into problems with the media and, you know, with, with Fight It With Your Mind. We did the video. Yeah. Um, which Angie Peaches in the video. You can see her running at the end there. Um we did the video. We actually shot it on 16 mil film, and it was promptly banned, mm. you know, by the SABC. Um, because what I loved about it, uh, part of it with your mind, was the message that that this is the most powerful weapon that you have. So the first album, they'd had a, a, a sort of a marginal radio hit with Schoolboy, which is yeah. was not on that album. 
that was with somebody else. But then because they were so powerful live, they attracted the attention of the security police mm. uh, and, and the authorities in general. Robbie never pulled punches. He was very confrontational. We did a gig um, down in park down in town um, where we had a packed house. And I mean, the temperature was just, you know, up there. And, you know, Robbie was revving them up. And he suddenly stopped. And I'll never forget the picture. It's in my mind. And his guitar was hanging, feeding back. And he put his hands up like this. And he said, and he said, F John Foster, because it's John Foster in those days. Mm. F the government, F apartheid. <laughs> oh, boom. Tear gas next through the windows. Wow. Um, and chaos. I mean, cops bust in and I grabbed them. And we went out the back and climbed through a toilet window because I wanted to arrest him. I mean, yeah. Know. In fact, Steve was the last person to leave. He was still like playing, you know? <laughs> um, and, and being furious because he's a furious drummer. And we climbed out the back of the so, so they did challenge the system. And anything that challenges the system, mm. the system either co-ops it yeah. or it fights it. Yeah. And because they couldn't co-opt the asylum kids, they fought mm. it. And then when Solid Principles came out, that took it. I mean, that, that opening Shaw's End track you listen to the lyrics of that that's all about what was happening and it was a it's a, a very powerful message i mean they are for me in terms of live performance performers probably the greatest south african band mm. but 81 was a, a pivotal year because also signed national wake yes at the same time yeah in a cloud of smoke because <laughs> um, they were really <laughs> they made Bob La Molly look like a, like a Mormon I mean uh, um, so I signed them as well and the same year I signed Lizzie Ray Darling wow and you know so then that so I was on a roll I was just signing things that that yeah. I felt were different some of my people in the company thought I was absolutely mental <laughs> because I would sign something like Nikki Daly living in the suburbs which is a obscure singer-songwriter, <laughs> songs about the hyperama and typists and everything. And then <laughs> so I, I, South African, so South African. I love that album. I love that yeah, album. Yeah, me as well. I've got that album. I oh, actually yeah. have it on vinyl. Have you, you got it on I vinyl? Do. Hold on to it. It's worth some money. Oh. <laughs> and, 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 and then I would sign a Canamai yeah. who were like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <laughs> you know, this prog, rocky, epic kind of swords and sorcery type of band. And then mm. you'd sign the Asylum Kids and then you would sign Petit Cheval who yeah. were this flouncy uh, <laughs> uh, new romantic band. Yeah. So it was a great time in the oh, 80s yeah. for signing. But it's, it's so funny because if I think back to that time, like I like if you're listening to the radio, you didn't hear you didn't hear a lot of the stuff. And you you didn't know that there was this amazing South African music scene. And then there was that whole move about, oh, we need to promote South African music. Local is lacquer, blah, blah, blah. And exactly, but, but, and it was as if there was, oh, shame, you know, like let's give, give them some help because they're not as good as the international artists. Meanwhile, we had amazing artists who were absolutely as good, if not better than international I, artists. I think a band like Petit Cheval, yeah. for instance, were better than Duran Duran. Yes. They had a really good lead singer. Yeah. And a really charismatic singer. He was he had that. He had yeah. that thing, you know. Yeah, we spoke um, to Danny DeVette and he told us stories about yeah, Jonathan. John, oh, I mean Jonathan and I used to fight like like wild animals, but 
he he was amazing live. They they were just as good as as as, as anybody out there. The, it was the politics that stopped the advancement of South African music in the eighties, and mm. I know that because I would go overseas. Um, Four times a year, and I would take my wares with me, and I would take Avoid, and I would take Petit Cheval, and I would take the Asylum Kids and Falling Mirror, yeah. one of my great favorites. Yeah. Uh, and I would just get, you know, a couple of the labels, the UK put out Avoid, Holland put out Falling Mirror, no one touched Petit Cheval. Um, but it, because it was, hey, South mm. African, whoa. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So unless you were overtly political, any white South African artist, mm. for instance. It was a no-go area internationally. Yeah. And here, I've always hated that word local. It's like, oh, no, it, it's so derogatory and der derisive. And, and, and I, you know, we didn't need any favors. We exactly. wanted you to play the record because it was a great record yeah. and it didn't yes. matter where it came from. Exactly, um, exactly. So slowly but surely when 702 came out in, was it 84, 702 I think it was? Somewhere around there. Somewhere yeah. around there. I mean, Neil Johnson was there. Yeah. And Neil Johnson used to, you'd walk in with like a Falling Mirror album and you'd go, I'll oh, play that track, that track, that track. <laughs> and you'd go, oh, cool. And then you'd have four tracks from Falling Mirror. It was like an FM station in America. Mm. So, so 702 started changing and then Radio 5 started to play... Mm. Stuff, but I used to fight with Radio Five all the time. <laughs> I, got thrown, I got banned from the SABC for six weeks <laughs> because I called Peter Human, who was the then uh, uh, head of Radio Five, a very, very, very strong four-letter word, um, <laughs> and that got me banned. But hey, still stand by it. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's interesting because when we spoke to Cindy Alter a few last year, she actually mentioned when they were touring with uh, Clout with Substitute that when in order of them for them to be on top of the pops, they said that they were from the Netherlands, not from South Africa, because of the political stigma of being a South African and being a white person. So in order for them to actually perform on top of the pops, she said they were now. Dutch people <laughs> and <laughs> from the I mean, Netherlands. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I get with the whole thing, and I've also had a discussion with Sandy about it. I mean, the Europeans were so hypocritical about the whole thing because, for instance, you know, Clout had to pretend they were a Dutch band. Lizzie yeah. Ray Darling was offered one of the biggest deals by MCA Records, yeah, right, that they'd ever done, but only if she became an Irish citizen. Of course, she refused. Sure. Um, That's crazy. So what? It, it's almost like the Zola Bud thing, you yes. Know, where she had to become an American to run, yeah, internationally. And <sighs> politics aside, music is the most powerful force that changes people's points of view, in my mm. opinion, mm -hmm. far more than other art forms. And I was always against the cultural boycott, not the economic boycott. Yeah, that I got. Yeah, and the political boycott, but the, but the cultural boycott. No, I, I. I Met anti-apartheid people in Los Angeles at a conference and I had this absolute raging war about that issue because mm. I was like, let people speak. Let people come over. Let them speak. Yeah. Say what's going on. Exactly. It was, Especially because they're speaking against, out against apartheid. Mm. They're not promoting it. They were. I mean, everybody. I mean, Avoid particularly were very political when they went to London. Yeah. I mean, they, yep. they, they, they really became very – they were playing – they were playing uh, uh, to raise money for the ANC and, and uh, everything like that. And, and so, but it didn't help them at all. That's why I say there was so much hypocrisy there. Mm. Whereas in America, it was only much later 
where the Americans suddenly got a conscience yeah. about apartheid. <laughs> Up until then, I mean, you know, oh, you're from South Africa? Oh, cool. You know, <laughs> uh, where's that? Yeah, um, exactly. Where's that? Know, where's that? You know, and how come? <laughs> da, 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 you know. But uh, yeah, the 80s was, was it, it was difficult for South African musicians to expand internationally. So what that had was an effect that they all looked inwards, and that led to the development of Via Africa, Hotline, mm. Mango, you know, that kind of uh, bright blue, that african influence pop music, which is so unique. Yeah. And now, I mean, I look at the current crop of artists out there. I, mean, I don't, is it, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, to me it's bland. There's no, there's nothing that says this is South African. You know? That was the beauty of Air Void mm. and, and, and Via Africa is they had that South African thing. Yeah. It was, people would go, wow. I had a Dutch person come into the shop yesterday, girl, never heard Mango Group before. <laughs> I said, and she said, I want something, you know, from South, South Africa. I said, okay, fine. Mm. And I played a penny whistle from the debut album. <laughs> she was beaming from ear to ear because it's so different. Yes. yes. Absolutely. We had something different, now we don't. Yeah, I mean, if I think even about, sorry, going back to the Asylum Kids, even that album, like it's punk, but it's got a very South African sound to it. Mm. It's not like British punk. You know? No, uh, no, no, it wasn't. I mean, yeah. Because I think the social conditions were different. Yeah, Punk was driven by unemployment, bad unemployment and bad economic policies in Thatcher's Britain. Yeah. Whereas the Asylum Kids and, and the other bands were driven by political things. Yeah. Um, but again, getting back to the point of... of that which the system does not understand it co-ops. Mm. So it wasn't very long uh, with punk that it went from being a force, a mm. revolutionary force in music, in the same way rock and roll and reggae mm. and hip-hop were, to being co-ops. So you'd go from getting a Sex Pistols album to going into Selfridges and getting a ripped T-shirt. <laughs> so that's what they do yeah. with every musical movement is they go, wow, this is scary. Oh, this. Oh, we could make money out of this. Mm. And it diffuses mm. the revolutionary zeal of music. Mm. You know, I mean, now you can, you can, you can buy Jim Morrison T-shirts. You can buy Bob Marley mm. dreadlocks. I mean, it's, it, it's the Asylum Kids never lost that. Yeah, never, lo never, ever gave in. Mm. And that's why they, they, they split and became, some of them went to be tribe after tribe. And yeah. Steve went to the Dynamics, who were also cool. Yes, I loved the cool. Dynamics. They were oh, very... So many of them on stage. <laughs> like, amazing to I watch I never live. knew who was... I was uh, <laughs> Harvey was in the shop a couple of weeks ago. I said, I never knew who was in the band anymore. You know, <laughs> I knew Steve and Harvey were there, but there was Winston and there was Jimmy and there was this one and that one. They were a great little band. Yeah. I remember seeing them live and I was like, wow, I was... There's so many of them. <laughs> that was my impression. But you mentioned Leslie Ray Darling. Yeah. And I see that she's actually releasing new music at the moment, which is, is very exciting. Yes. So there's a Leslie Ray Darling fan page on Facebook. Okay. And somebody posted a new song on there this week. Wow. And I, it's just a snippet because it's right. a teaser. Right. And it's, it's, it's exactly what you do. It's, it's that like voice. old Leslie Ray Darling. But it's so. It's, I I I need to speak to Leslie Ray Darling. Yes. We're going to track her down. Yeah. So I don't know if you can help us with that. I can Benji. help you, you can with help that. Oh, please. We, I can't we, guarantee she'll talk. But I know I've heard. But we've we've spoken about her so much on our Eddie show. Um, I actually we do we also do movie reviews on the show, and I did um, a review of Canary. 
Oh, right. And I don't know if you remember, there's that scene, if you've seen Canary, where they go into the nightclub and Lizzie Ray Darling's playing in the nightclub. And it's, it was so nostalgic. And for me, that is beyond uniquely South African, her voice, yeah. the sound of those was songs. Was she out of all of the singers? Yeah. Being, and there'd be some, some great singers. Yeah. yeah. She is the one who is, is, is unique. Mm. I mean, I, Tully McCulley, I'll never forget it, sent me a cassette of Grips of Emotion and The Spaniard. And I just met Tully, actually. Yeah. Um, and I said, hey, look, I'm an A&R guy, you know. <laughs> um, if you've got any stuff. I was always looking for stuff. And he sent me these two songs. And I'll never forget it, hearing, um, hearing the opening words to, to The Spaniard. Oh. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> so I went. Tully said he wanted 2,000 Rand advance for this album that he had finished. Mm. And I went to Derek my boss and said, I want to put this record out, but I need 2,000 Rand. Well, 2,000 Rand like then yeah. was, a, was a, lot a lot of money. Of money and he yeah. said, you're mad. Everyone had turned her, everybody had turned her down. Wow. wow. Well, because I don't think they got it. I mean, she's got yeah, a very unusual voice. a strange voice. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. And so I got the money and he said, well, your job's on the line. I went, fine, I'll do it. And then, of course, Leslie exploded, mm. became the superstar that she didn't really want to be. Yeah. Um, she wanted to make records, but she didn't want to be live. She, yeah. she was never, uh, never happy with it. And when it got to a point with Leslie after When the Night Comes, yeah, which is the Jonathan Butler-produced record, and she said to me, Benj, I'm, I'm done with this. And I went, okay. Uh, and I stayed in touch, and then I would phone her. And I would say, you want to do, you, you do another album? She'd go, no. And then <laughs> I would phone another year. <laughs> Seven years I waited. Sure. And eventually she phoned me mm. and said, I'm ready to do something. Yeah. And I went, okay. She says, but I want to record it on the farm. Mm. So I said, okay. So we took the whole of Bob Studios, <laughs> shipped it down to Stellenbosch. Wow. Got together Alan Lazar from Mango, Ritz Lotz, Sipo Gumedi and Ian Herman from Tananas and yeah. myself. And Steve Cook's the engineer. We all moved into Stellenbosch for four weeks. And we lived on the farm and in the, in, in the town and everything. And we put unbounded waters together. And, and during that time, her mother died and it was all dramas. And there was, I mean, there's loads of stories about the recording of that album. But that year, that album won, I think, four, four awards. Hmm. For Samas, I think we had Samas. Did we have Samas in 1995? I think we did. I think we did have the Samas. Early 90s was the Octaves. Remember the Octaves? Okay, Bazaars, sponsors the South African music. We had the Saris, we had the Octaves, we had the Scotties. I don't remember The Scotties were 3M, the tape company. And then we had the Samas. I should know because I was one of the founder members of the Samas. Anyway, I mean, the point being is that she came back Seven years later, yeah, and the make. I, I'm going to be writing it in my book um, yeah. uh, the, about the making of the record because there's, there's oh, that must be you know amazing I listen to her voice now, and even then, when I hear her sing, and it's not a comparison because they're all very individual and very different and brilliant. I always had 
likened her or aligned her in the same sort of categories with Laura Brannigan and Jennifer Rush. I have always had those images in my head mm. with Leslie Ray Dowling. Mm -hmm. Somehow those two names and faces came to me when I listened to Leslie Ray Darling as a child and still today. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah well, I mean, that's, that's the great thing about music. It's yeah. The interprets. It's, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I kind of, I thought she was closer to Joni Mitchell mm. and um, Kate Bush uh, because of the abstractness of, of, of the songs. Yeah. Um, to, to sit and listen to Leslie playing you a new song uh, uh, in, her, in her lounge on the piano is one of the most amazing experiences because you actually are sitting and hearing this thing being created and she'll play with her eyes closed and, and you'll hear the... I mean, I heard Unravished Brides for the first time and I went... <gasps> and then she'll go, oh, Benji, what did you think of that? And I'll go... Oh, my Darling, that's amazing. She's like, oh, man. You know? <laughs> she is a, she is what a great memory. I'd like to have had that experience. You're very lucky. I love that. Yeah. Uh, 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 that's been a hallmark of my life in the 80s yeah. with artists was always, because I'm a very studio and songwriting person. So mm. I'm, I'm very, very b based in songwriting. I love good songs. Yeah. And I love being in the studio. And same with the Nia Nell stuff. I mean, the whole of the second album, I literally saw being created in front of me and sat and go, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we move that? And then being in the studio, I mean, mm. <clears throat> I loved it. I haven't been in, well, the last studio thing was Lance James's album. Yes. But um, that's also another story. <laughs> For real? Or another time. <laughs> or we'd be here all day if we had yeah, yeah. stories. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about Mango Groove. Okay. A bit more about them because, I mean, they – really did i think well i mean we were already on the map right but mango groove put south africa on the map in a, in a new way which was more i suppose less political more fun mango i knew i knew of mango in the mid 80s yeah before Ma mango became that mango yeah group. yeah i mean john Layden uh, um and and claire johnson were, were together a, a lot longer than people um remember mm. and they also had mickey villacazi playing trombone who died before the recording of the first album mm. and how i came into it is interlinked with mark alex mark alex came out first mm. and exploded quick yes. quick was a massive hit heartbreak in love just it was massive all of a sudden these two guys from soweto mm. were the biggest thing in pop music and girls were going crazy and the whole number <laughs> and i said and i couldn't deal with all the the, the fan hysteria and uh, I said I've got to get them a manager <laughs> so I called up Roddy Quinn yes and I said Roddy listen you know I've got this band and everything you're interested in managing he said yeah I'll come over so he came to the office to the Tusk office and we stuck a deal together and 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 then he said look I've got to go I said where are you going he said I'm going to Gallo I said what are you going to go to Gallo for we're going to sign Mango Groove to Gallo I said Mango Groove hmm. I said, like uh, John John and Claire now Mango Groove originally was more of a kind of Marabi, ska, slightly mm. punk band mm. when they were at, you know, at Vitz and, yeah. and, and at that time. And so I said, oh, okay. He said, yeah, we've done this album with Robert Schroeder and some investors and we brought in Chris Burkett, who was a well-known producer from England. I went, okay. I said, play it to me. So I said, I'll show you two videos. He showed me Hellfire and Dance Some More. Mm. I was like, huh? <laughs> uh, it, the thing about A&R yeah. is, is you know 
Mm. No. You just know. It doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. Sometimes you think you know <laughs> and you're wrong. But sometimes you go, oh, my God. Mm. And that was one of the moments where I thought, this is going to be massive. Yeah. So I said to him, what are Gala offering you? And, and he told me, I said, okay, I'll offer you this. Mm. And he said, you can't, you can't do that. I said, phone Robert Schroeder. Robert, Robert mm. was the owner of the project. Phone mm. Robert Schroeder. I got on the phone with Robert. I said, I'll give you this. Mm. And he said, okay. So oh, Gala must have been upset. <laughs> well, Charlie Quinn <laughs> from Just Music told me years later, they were furious. Furious with uh, furious with Mango and and f- particularly furious with me. So so, I thought the first album, I thought definitely in for a gold record, definitely twenty five thousand. Mm. Oh, it just went through the roof. Mango Groove is a soundtrack to democracy, mm. in my opinion. Wow, special star. Yeah, it's a soundtrack to the revolution here, the change the yeah. Cler- from the clerk's speech to Mandela's release all the way through to the first democratic election. That soundtrack is Mango. Mm. Special, when we had, we had put out Don Some More and we'd put out Hellfire and the album did 25,000. We were mm. gold. Mm. And then John and Claire and just had the stroke of genius and they did the video for Special Star, which was about the exiles coming back on the plane. I don't know if you remember the video. You see this black and white yeah, yeah. video. They come off the plane and they... Yeah. On earth, and, and you've got the, the, the schoolgirl dances yeah. and everything, and suddenly the song explodes into that happy mm. kind of thing, and everyone's going, and, and, and it was just so South African. It was as if there was no problem. Yeah. And that exploded the record. Yeah. I mean, I think we did 400,000, mm. something like that. And was that unprecedented in South totally African music? Yeah. Totally unprecedented. How come our gold platinum numbers for sales are very different to the standards overseas, like in the UK and USA? Why population? Okay, it's population driven. Um, You'll find that Australia has a different uh, uh, rating. Germany had a different rating. America, by proxy of being the biggest market, uh, you had to sell five hundred thousand for gold and a million for platinum, and we were twenty five thousand for gold and fifty thousand for platinum. It was relative to the size of the market. You know, South Africa, even at its peak, was only about one percent of the world market. Mm. So you know, listen, I was happy with twenty five thousand. Oh yeah, you know, I was even happier with four hundred thousand. So Mark, I I mean, Mango, and then of course we had Home Talk. Yeah. Then yeah. we had another country, yeah. which, w- which was brilliant. And then we had Eat a Mango, which I never liked. Um, and I then it was. Con- yeah, yeah. I, and I was like, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> but you know, Mango was, was very, very, very tightly controlled by John. And, and all credit to him. Yeah. He, he, he knew what he wanted. But there was a time when they were just so big. Yeah. I remember when I was at university, there was some sort of concert and mm. Mango Groove were playing and there was all the talk around the corridors of how much they'd had to pay mm. to get, and, and like they'd never paid that for a South African band, mm. ever. I was like, what? It's crazy. But they, they used I, to get I, the money. They do, I mean, I don't know, you know, figure, <laughs> there's always these urban legends <laughs> about figures and everything. But I mean, I heard at one point they were, you know, they, they were getting 250000 a gig. Mm. And I mean, but they pulled it, and and Claire still pulls an audience 
Mango yeah. still pull an audience now. Yeah. And they're not cheap. I know that for a fact because yeah. D, D, my wife, is a, a publicist. <laughs> so, so and, and she knows the booking agent. And you know what? Good for them. Absolutely. You know, they've managed to make a fantastic career yeah. um, out, out of those records. Yeah. And she's great live. She yeah. really is such a vibey, vibey person. So who else can you think of from the 80s that oh, you've got God. good stories oh. to share? Well, Petit Cheval was, <laughs> yeah. were, 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 was one of them because that kind of was, was also after Avoid was the, the sort of big teen thing. And yeah. Jonathan was just, I mean, Jonathan was just something else. He always reminds me, what's that English word? Uh, it's like very... Um, Lord Byron, he was like Lord Byron, you know, <laughs> with the white flouncy shirts. I mean, there was the, there was um, there was a little sister, obviously, also yeah. in '89, and that was an interesting one. There was uh, um, Nikki Daly. We spoke about. I yeah. love Nikki Daly. Yeah. Um, and I'm just trying to think of the others. There's so many records. You mentioned Falling Mirror. Oh, let's talk oh, about them. Yeah, the Mirror mm. again. Tully, Tully. Um, sent me an eight millimeter film of making out with granny mm. with Neilan in the studio, just this darkened studio <laughs> and this demented guy behind the mic. It's a good description of them. It's <laughs> demented. It's almost, you couldn't take your eyes off it. And I found him up and I said, what is this? Mm. He says, a band called Falling Mirror. Mm. Do you want to hear the album? I said, yeah, he sent me Zen Boulders. Mm. Fell in love with it. Fell in love with the band. I'm still a huge fan of Falling Mirror. Yeah. If, if there's one band that really deserved to be like early Pink Floyd, or to be, be, be treated as, as a, a, a progressive band in terms of their writing and their playing, it would have been Falling Mirror. But yeah. they were mad as March Hairs. I mean, yeah. you know, Neilan is... <laughs> I actually saw Robin Ault perform the other night and he did the cover of Johnny Call the Chemist. Oh, did he do Johnny Call? He did. Johnny Call the Chemist, funny enough. I mean, we did three albums. We did Zen Boulder, Storming of the Loft, mm. and we did The Fantasy Kid with diminishing returns on all of them. Mm. But that wasn't the issue. I loved what they did. Yeah. And the weirder they got, the better <laughs> I loved them. It became a joking task. Weir and in, actually in Weir because we were still Weir. It became a joke that we, you know, Benji's on his on his falling mirror, and I would I would <laughs> I was like a Bible punching revivalist about falling mirror. You know, I was like, this is the greatest band in the world. And I really <laughs> did believe it, and I still think that they're great. Then Johnny calls the chemist came out. Yeah, and Johnny calls the chemist the song. People think it's a pop song. It's not a pop song. Mm. It's a very dark song. No, yeah. Very yeah. dark song about obsession. Yeah. And about pharmaceutical addiction. Mm. And he does it in that quasi Dylan mm. sort of voice. Yes. And it was actually a piss take mm. that they did. And Tully said, well, let's send it to Bench. And they sent it to me and I went, that's, that's going to be a hit. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, we've got a hit. <laughs> and it was a hit. It was number one. Yeah. And for the first time, I sold records <laughs> of Falling Mirror, and I was so happy. And then yeah. they fell apart again. Yeah. You know? It's so funny, because for me, that song falls into the same category as, like, with Nikki Daly. Uniquely South African mm. lyrics. Mm. Like, very, like, just But there were other things that were, like, the helicopters out of yes. Funnabelle Park. Oh, I love them. The helicopters are really cool. Yeah. Uh, um, I mentioned National Wake. They were great. We only yeah. got one album out of it, and, of course, a lot of trouble for me. 
mm. uh, the national wake record uh, with, the, with, with the authorities. And because at that time, South Africa, the SADF was in Angola, and there's a song on there called International News, which talks about the choppers mm. going into Angola. And you were not allowed under security legislation to even say that, a bit like Putin. <laughs> at the moment, yeah. you're not allowed to say that Russia's invaded yeah. the Ukraine. Yeah. The, 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 the security legislation on the media in 1981 was hectic. Mm. So when, that, when, when, we, when I got that record and I listened, I went, oh, this is going to cause cuck. <laughs> um, and it did. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 um, the printers phoned us and refused to print the lyrics to that particular song. Yeah. Our lawyer said, you can't put that record out if you've got the lyrics on, on, on the record, uh, on the mm. lyric sheet. Yeah. Um, even if you do put it out, you're going to have trouble. And we did. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so as a, I was like, you know. <laughs> so we took, we took out the lyrics for international news and left a blank spot. Ah. So very obvious. Yes. Yeah. You should have just done the redacting with the black. <laughs> yeah, I should have at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we put it out and I'd put out a single before that, which was doing quite well at, at, at radio called Time and Space. And then it just went, boom, mm. shut down, shut down, shut down. Mm. The record got banned by the SABC, mm. and then we got visits. Wasn't it like a bit of a status symbol, though, to be banned by the SABC in those days? Like, like then you knew so. you'd done something great, right? <laughs> they were SABC in the eighties was would ban anything, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anything to do with sex, mm. anything to do with religion, particularly Christianity, mm. um, anything to do with. I mean, Rodriguez. With, that was drugs, right? Yeah, I mean, Rodriguez was a stoner record. You know, all this thing about Rodriguez, cold fact, was a political statement. There's a lot of bollocks. No, it was, really. it was about drugs. Don't. It's all about drugs, man. Uh, Lucian Windridge used to play me that record in Brackpan. <laughs> and I was, I was into Black Sabbath and Budgie. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was going, oh, that's crap, you know. <laughs> I mean, I always thought he was a second-rate Dylan, but let's not even go there. Because <laughs> okay. I'll probably have death threats from Rodriguez Ooh. fans. Um, so there were all these different bands. Yeah, there was, there was uh, uh, the helicopters were fun. Mm. I, I, I like. I loved. Uh, I loved doing. Um, I mean, I'm. I, I'm a pop slut in a way. I, I love. <laughs> I love pop music. Yeah. You know? Yep. I don't play it at home. I'm more, I suppose, arcane with what I listen to. But I love good pop music. So yeah. When I went to Universal and signed the Arrows, who we mm. were pure pop, and Elvis Blue, which <laughs> was completely different. Um, you know, I, I like. Going, we did Mike Machelemele as well in the eighties, yeah. um, which which we did well with in in America. Oh God, there were so many records. Yeah. yeah. What did you think time. of like the Cherry Face Lurchers, Radio Rats, those guys? <laughs> you see, I knew James. Yes. From Springs. Right. From Corporal Punishment. Right. So it was Corporal Punishment was was Carl. Mm. Uh, there was James and there was uh, Mark Bennett, so I knew them. The drummer was always it was it was a, it was always a, a, a rotating drummer there. It was yeah. a bit, and um, so I knew them from Springs, and they were on Six of the Best, which I released in '79 with Wild Youth and uh, Corporal Punishment, the Safari Suits from Cape Town. <laughs> so I used to go and see the Lurchers at uh, Jamison's, yeah, like so many of us did. 
And James always unceasingly managed to hit me for a lot of drinks. <laughs> yes. he, was, he, was, he, was a wild, he was a wild child. I'm but, proud to say I have bought James Phillips drinks as well. Not at Jameson's, but at other venues. I know. I, I, yeah, there are certain musicians that I, I was, you know, um, <laughs> you know. James, but what I loved about him yeah. is how he developed as a musician. Yeah. From this kind of punky uh, alternative singer-songwriter to this incredibly complex musician. Mm. And it was sad. I mean, when he went, it was very, very sad. But yeah. I mean, my fondest memory is when, the, when he was with Corporals <laughs> and I went to go and see them in, in Springs and I thought, this is the worst band I've <laughs> ever seen live because they were so out of it. <laughs> and Marky Bennett, <laughs> so, and, and I still laugh about it. Z remembers coming to Weir. We had this big house in in in, in uh, Parktown, and he used to come there, and they would they would just sit and smoke. Yeah, you know? they, yeah. They were really Wild Juice is another band that I I, I hmm. grew to like. They hated me, <laughs> um, as true punks do. Yes, they, they hate record companies. Right. He even wrote a song about us called Record Companies. <laughs> uh, but now I'm really good friends with Michael Fleck. Yeah. Or Johnny Teen, as he was called then. So Wild Youth, I think, is. Uh, uh, Great, great, great punk band. What about Jennifer Ferguson? She also, for me, contributed something unique to the, South, the sound of South Africa. Well, I music. think I think Shifty largely played a very big role mm. uh, in 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 introducing people to yet another alternative. Yeah. So, so Jennifer was a. I heard um, the first album, "Hand on My Heart." Is it? Yeah, the first I think album. So, yeah. And it had Angel Fish on it. Yes. And I thought, oh my God, this is brilliant. I need to sign this. Yeah. So I went to Lloyd, who I'd met through National Wake. Yeah. And I said, I love this record. I want to put it out. No. No. no I'm going to put it out. Mm. Okay. Then he had the Genuines. He yeah. had uh, he had the, the Softies, he, the Lurchers. The Carols. Uh, uh, the, the, oh God, Gary. Gary. Um, <laughs> the Carols. I mean, Kalahari Surfers. Yeah. You see, South Africa was very rich in mm. the 80s in different bands. So I took care of one side of it, which was a mixture of anarchy <laughs> and pop. Yeah. I've never pretended to be like Shifty, for instance. Yeah. Shifty was a genuinely revolutionary label mm. that had absolutely no interest in being commercial yeah. and had absolutely very little business sense. <laughs> I had business sense. I wanted to make money too, yes. you know, for the company because otherwise they wouldn't let me sign whatever I wanted to sign. Yeah. And you had that and then you had Dave Marks doing the folk thing and everything. So if you look at the broadness of yeah. it, you know, a lot of great, great artists and companies, you know, so so – and the nice thing is that as as I've got older and, and met up with these people, I mean, uh, uh, Johnny Teen, who hated me back then, and, and, and Ivan Cady from National Wake said that I didn't really market the album. I didn't market the album. I didn't know what marketing was. <laughs> I mean, come on. I was like 20-something. Yeah. You know, for me, putting out the record. You were just like, this is great music. Clarion, I want people to hear it. That's all. Clarion Call. I was <laughs> yeah. like that. Clarion Call to arms. Yeah. Buy this record. These guys are great. Well, it was fun. It must have worked, Benji, because I think, you know, you've had an incredible career. And I do think that a lot of South African artists um, owe their career to you. So, But it wouldn't have happened, Dory, if, if, if I'd not been put in that space with so many talented people. Yeah. 
I mean, you, you know, you, you, you have to acknowledge that if, it, if I hadn't have had Leslie or Robbie, if they were not there, I wouldn't have been able to be inspired by that. Mm. And so, and make the mistakes that I made <laughs> and had the success that, that we, we had. I mean, I'm very proud of what, what I did. Yeah. And I think time, I think, has shown that a lot of the stuff that I did is very influential in the development of music. And I'm happy with that. And I hope, yeah. it, I, I hope it lasts long after I'm gone, you know. Yeah. But the 80s hold a very special part in my in my soul in, in in my career because i think my greatest signings in terms of music hmm. just from a pure musical point of view yeah were, were the 80s yeah. so i had the mangoes i mean i love mango you know and oh. and i had the successes with the arrows and i had you know the elvis blues and the platinum record all of that's great mm. it's great it kept everybody happy yes but the 80s yeah was when it was exciting and unpredictable yeah. So unpredictable. You never knew what was going to happen next. Politically, you had no idea what was going on. Mm. Right? You, you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Townships would be burning and the bands would be playing. Yeah. You lived in this, this weird little alter universe then. And all this music was just boring. Not just music, art, mm. dance, political uh, theory. Everything was just pouring out. Yeah, the 80s. <laughs> There's that saying, just in closing, if you don't remember the 60s, you were never really there. I think now it's kind of like if you don't remember the 80s, you were not really there. And I must I must admit, I mean, there are parts that are a little fuzzy, <laughs> but I'm slowly I'm slowly getting through it for the book. So, you know, I'm really hard at work at that, that book now. I think I've got a title for your book, What's Pop that? Sluts. <laughs> Actually, the title of the book... <laughs> I like it. <laughs> It's great. You know what? It would make a great chapter because I could have just, yeah, it would make a really good, because I mean, I had a lot of pop hits, but I would, I would I, I, the title of the book is Excess All Areas. Oh, nice. That's very cool. Because that's, I toyed with different things like I'm with the band and I thought mm. that was, it was a little too groupy-ish. Um, but Excess All Areas kind of encapsulates oh, yeah. my life, you know. I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. So when can we expect the book, Benji? My wife keeps saying to me, darling, you've really <laughs> got to focus before your head starts going. And and she's right. So while I was driving, I was thinking maybe what I should do, because I'm writing in spurts, maybe what I should do is like take a week off and go somewhere. With my computer and just, just sit and it. write and get it done. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be an interesting book because I won't pull any punches on it, and mm. and I mean I may I may have to leave the country afterwards if I, <laughs> if I tell all the truth. <laughs> yes, oh, you know I think it'll be awesome either way. <laughs> Thank you so much, Benji. Pleasure, Dory. Thank you.